Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm your host, journalist Holly Rubenstein, and here each week I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with, to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. I hope everyone is keeping well this week. I've seen loads of you are going away for late summer getaways that look absolutely glorious. I had the opportunity to get away for a few days as well uh, last week to the New Forest, which is really one of my favourite parts of the UK. I just, I love the wild countryside, the wild horses and the lovely quaint villages and its proximity to the beach. I mean, we were staying in a place that was five minutes drive from the beach. So it really has it all. I was staying in a, a magical Georgian farmhouse that I cannot recommend more highly it was called Derns which is truly the ultimate family holiday home it has an outdoor pool that's heated all year round we loved dipping in there honestly it was so lovely like a bath every garden game under the sun a bar come games room in the garden an outdoor cinema a shepherd's hut a fully stocked pantry and even a dorm room with six single beds all tucked into the eaves for the kids the attention to detail was really like something I'd never seen before and the house is part of Lymore New Forest Collection and it's also one of Cool Stays unique and unusual places to stay so if you're not familiar with Cool Stays it's genuinely one of my go-tos for browsing where to go on holiday around the world they have this portfolio of over 2,000 hand-picked extraordinary places to stay that are all kind of quirky noteworthy stylish things like tree houses lighthouses windmills glamping cool cottages that kind of thing and I'm teaming up with them to give you, my lovely listeners, a chance to win a £250 Cool Stays voucher to use for your next holiday, as well as also giving away one of my limited edition bespoke travel diaries, travel diaries, which I'm so proud of and I can't wait for you guys to see. So just head over to my Instagram, which is at Holly Rubenstein, to find out how to enter. You enter there and you have until tomorrow evening. That's Wednesday evening to enter. So good luck. Right on to today's guest and my goodness, this is a big one. With over 50 restaurants, multiple Michelin stars and innumerable celebrity fans, Wolfgang Puck is one of the world's most famous chefs and global restaurateurs. Born in Austria, he began cooking alongside his mother who was a chef before starting his formal chef training at just 14 years old, quickly going on to cook at some of France's best restaurants. But it wasn't an easy childhood and Wolfgang is incredibly honest today about the abusive relationship he had to endure with his stepfather at home and how that has shaped who he is and where he still can't bring himself to travel as a result. It was far away from Austria in Los Angeles, California, where Wolfgang really made a name for himself, garnering the attention of the Hollywood elite, arguably becoming the world's first celebrity chef and spearheading a revolution of Californian cuisine with his flagship restaurant Spargo. For over 30 years now, he's been the official caterer of the Oscars, lining the stomachs of every gong-hungry nominee, and he was even awarded his own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. So when you have a global restaurant empire like Wolfgang, you spend a lot of time traveling, right? And this episode takes us to some fabulous locations all over the world, from Sardinia to Mexico, Capri to Japan. I really enjoyed this one, so... Let's get started. 
Wolfgang Puck. Welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. Welcome back to London. How are you? Thank you. I'm really well. I love London and especially with a day like that, the weather is perfect. I think I'm in California. Yeah, we are speaking on one of the most sunny, warm days that I think we've had this year. So you brought the Californian sunshine over with you. Yeah, that's what I tell everybody. I said when <laughs> I come, I not only bring my knives and uh, mallets and everything, but I also bring the weather. Yes, Brilliant. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Wolfgang, for doing that. And we are speaking in this incredible penthouse suite at 45 Park Lane in Mayfair, in the heart of London. And this is a, a hotel that has a special connection with you. Absolutely. You know, I love the Dorchester collection and uh, uh, 45 Park Lane is part of the Dorchester collection. It's a very modern luxury hotel. And we have our restaurant here. It's called The Cut. It's a steak restaurant. It specializes in meat. But as I said before, you know, we also have great fish like Dover Sol mm. and uh, sea bass and so on. And then we get great prawns. So, but meat is really our specialty. We get meat from all over the world, from uh, the U.S., obviously. We are from Australia, from Japan, and uh, also from the U.K., I'm getting in some uh, Wagyu beef from Ireland, some farmers oh. from Ireland. They're sending it to me tomorrow. How exciting. So I'm very excited about that because they're feeding their animals with part of it is seaweed because they're all on the coast there. And, and how so, does that affect the flavor? Well, I will find out tomorrow. They yeah. sent me some to New York, but I couldn't go to New York. So now I'm going to get it tomorrow. So we'll, I'm very excited about oh, it. Oh, watch this space. Yeah. have to come and try it. How interesting. We're going to go on a journey today, Wolfgang, through the seven chapters of your life's travel diaries. And we were just saying that you spend a huge amount of each year traveling. Absolutely. You know, we have restaurants uh, all over. I started with Spago in Beverly Hills. Then we opened uh, restaurants in Las Vegas. Then we moved to New York. We have a cut in New York and a cut in Washington, a cut here in uh, London. Then I have a Spago in Budapest, a Spago yeah. in Istanbul. We are in Bahrain, in Singapore. Oh, so, uh, and amazing. one of my favorite places, Maui. Yeah, in Hawaii. Yeah. Oh, so you spend a lot of time going and visiting your, your restaurants, I assume. Exactly. So I travel a lot, but what I always try to do now, and I didn't accomplish it yet, is travel, work, and take some time off. Nice. You know, I, that should, balance. I should have, uh, even coming here to London, I said, if I work three days, at least I should go to one uh, theater or I should do something mm -hmm. more, go to a gallery, go to a museum, get a little culture. I think it would be nice. Yeah. And have you got time this time? You know, I did not plan it in. No. So <laughs> I always tell myself I have to spend three days working, two days a little pleasure, you know. And I Next love time. I love art. I love theater. I live in like opera. I like concerts, you know. So... I think I, want, I have to really organize myself better instead of saying, okay, I work until Friday night and then Saturday morning I fly home. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And London is the place for your it's culture. It's the place to it? be for culture. Absolutely. Yeah. So the first chapter of your travel diaries, Wolfgang, is chapter one, your earliest childhood travel memory. Well... It's funny that we are talking about. So I grew up in Austria, really poor. We never went on vacation with my parents or anything like that. My mother mm -hmm. was a cook also, and my father was a coal miner. Mm -hmm. When I was 11 years old, there was this uh, uh, charity group called Save the Children. 
And they picked me uh, with 20 other kids from that region to have a trip to England. Really? So we took the train to Ostend in Belgium, then Uh took the ferry to Dover. And then uh, we went to this uh, uh, place near Colchester in Essex. Right. Colchester Calvedon. That was the holiday destination for us kids. It was like a home for kids. Like So we were 20 or 24 kids there. And uh, I remember one time we came here to London, went to the Kensington Zoo. And uh, uh, I think that was really my first memory of an exciting travel experience. And we went to an Air Force station. I think it was an American Air Force station maybe. And uh, I sat in a fighter chat and everything. So it was really exciting as mm. an 11-year-old boy. I can imagine. And what was your impression in contrast to Austria, like of, of England? Well, since I'm in the food business, it was the first time I had cereals, cornflakes. Really? We had cornflakes for breakfast. I never had that in Austria. What would you have for breakfast? Uh, in Austria, we had polenta, we had bread. Polenta. Yeah. Mm. We had milk or coffee with it, but never store-bought stuff. You know, my mother made her own bread. Uh, she made the polenta, you know, out of corn flour yeah. and had that with milk or coffee and sugar on it. So we ate that. Or we had uh, uh, a semolina in milk, you know. And that was more traditional. But I still remember when we had uh, cornflakes <laughs> with a little brown sugar on top. And yeah. uh, I mean, this is now like 60 years ago. Yeah. I still remember it. And uh, it was so good. And I told my mom, I said, oh, I had this amazing thing called cornflakes. And then she found some in the store and she bought them once, oh. but then uh, not anymore. But uh, I think also we had uh, uh, hamburgers for the first time at, at this at the Air Force station there, and uh, I think they made hamburgers, and I said, oh, that's pretty good too, so it was interesting. How interesting that the memories that really stand out from that trip, yeah. even back when you were 11, mm-hmm. were were food memories. So, I mean, how, how early on was it that you had, you know, this love of, love of food? Was that imbued in you from your mum, would you yeah. say? My mum was a chef, so I always was involved in food every summer. We used to go, my sister and myself, to where she worked in this resort hotel, and we spent time there. And so I was helping the pastry chef or somebody else in the kitchen or sometimes the gardener picking strawberries. So it was really, I think food was always a big part of our life, even we didn't have much. I remember in... uh, in the springtime, for example, when the first salad was ready, the first radishes were there, or when the tomatoes got ripe, or in the summer, like in July, we went pick mushrooms in the up in the forest. You know, we were right next to a big forest, or strawberries, wild strawberries, and raspberries and blueberries. So we picked them and then ate them. And uh, and at the height of the season, we picked them. And my mother used to make marmalade. Oh, that's so nice. Such a seasonal approach to food. Yeah. Yeah, totally. We only had things, you know, like today we talk actually about, you know, farm to table and these things. For us, that was the way we lived. Yeah. You know, we went in the garden, picked some vegetables, a leek, a cauliflower, maybe some new potatoes, some carrots, and my mother made soup. Yes. We picked a salad, uh, maybe a cucumbers and a few tomatoes. We had salad. So it was always whatever we had. In the wintertime, we ate more potatoes. We ate uh, things my mother pickled and stuff like that. But a lot of rice, a lot of noodles, but not many fresh vegetables. Hmm. And 
Am I right in saying that your mum encouraged you? She obviously saw something in you because you 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 decided to go into formal training to be a chef yourself at uh-huh. 14. That's yeah. so young. Well, because I worked every summer at this hotel where my mother was a chef. Yeah. And then I wanted to go actually to Vienna to architectural school. I wanted to be an architect. That uh-huh. was my dream as a kid because when I saw pictures of the Empire State Building in New York and I said, who built this? Somebody told me as an architect. I said, I want to build a building like that in town. I want to mm-hmm. be an architect. But we didn't have the money for me to move to Vienna. So then the next thing was, you know, I could find maybe a job cooking. So my mother found me this job uh, in Villach. It's a town 50 miles away from where we lived. Mm-hmm. And I started my apprenticeship there against the will of my stepfather, who always said cooking was for women. It's not a profession. I should be a mechanic or a carpenter or something like that. Mm. Well, you proved you proved him wrong with that yeah, one. Totally. And he always told me, oh, you're good for nothing. You're good for nothing. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, I proved him wrong. And at the end, you know, he really actually became totally around and said, oh, Wolfgang did so well and everything. He went to see the governor in Carinthia, the state where we grew up, and uh, said, you have to build a statue for him and everything. So <laughs> it was funny. It must have been, uh, did your mum live to see you become the success that yeah. you, you are? Yeah, totally. You know, we didn't uh, have that many restaurants international then, but we were very successful in uh, Los Angeles, we had a restaurant in Maui, we had a restaurant in Vegas. So God, that must have meant San so much to her. Yeah, she must be her. so proud. She, each time I ask, or I told my mother, we are opening a new restaurant. She said, why you need another restaurant? Don't you have enough? You, you only can be in one at a time. So I think I said, no, I like the experience of opening new restaurants. I like the adrenaline flowing and the excitement of a new restaurant. Mm. So chapter two. That is the first place that you fell in love with. Wow. The first place I fell in love with when I went was probably a skiing trip. Mm -hmm. I went to the Alpberg skiing, and uh, I think I thought it was the best place. Not only the food was great, but you could ski the whole day and never ski the same slope. You go up from one little village to the next village to the next village. And to me, that was really so special because I grew up as a kid, not with no money. So we had to walk up the hill. So that was. Did you ski throughout your childhood there? Because you're Austrian, right? Is it in your blood, kind of? In Austria, everybody skis, you know. So that's a total normal thing. We lived. I walked outside to the house and on my put the skis on and off I went down the hill. But then I had to walk up, so that was (laughs) out. But I think. I totally fell in love with the place uh, on the Alpberg in Zürich and Lech. I think it's so charming and uh, so beautiful, and the snow was so amazing. And are you still a keen skier? I still ski. I ski uh, last uh, winter. I skied in uh, in Utah, you know, in Park City, where they had the Olympics up there. So it was not a lot of snow. It was not the best skiing. So I dreamt of coming back to Austria. How does how does US skiing compare to European skiing? Because there are kind of like two yeah. teams, aren't there? Really, it is so different. First of all, I think the only downside of skiing in Europe is the jet lag when you come, especially for the children. They, they stay up all night and then yeah. uh, they don't want to get up in the morning to have breakfast and go skiing. But I think in Europe, the after ski or 
taking time for lunch is an important part. It's probably even more important than the skiing. Than the skiing, <laughs> yeah. So you get up, you have your breakfast, you ski for a few hours, then you go have lunch, have some wine, and then maybe you go back. And uh, in America, I remember people go, and you don't really have good restaurants on the slopes, so people go to these self-serve things where you get hamburgers and hot dogs and you sit down like and fasting, eat something yeah. fast, and you really don't enjoy the time. And I think... Uh, in Europe, skiing is an experience, you totally, know, for yeah. all the senses. You get great food, you get uh, beautiful mountains, great skiing. So it's really a totally different experience. Yeah, so like I've never been skiing, but I've been on alpine holidays where other people have skied. And I've just enjoyed, you know, a hot chocolate, looking out over yeah. the, the slopes and people as you say take such a long time with the apre ski that you don't almost feel like you're missing out though i would love to try skiing at some point i just don't feel like i'm especially uh, robust <laughs> you know skiing is actually one of the f easier sports to learn now with the, with the new skis they are building you know the parabolic skis they oh, you just they? have to shift the weight and you can turn so and they've evolved the skis yeah, to make it easier. Totally from the skis I had. Like really? you know, the first skis uh, when I was a kid, my uncle made skis in the winter time. So they them. were out of wood. If you dropped them, I remember one time I got them for Christmas. I threw them, I don't know why, and it split oh, <laughs> because no. it was just a wooden board. So <laughs> so now it's totally different, much lighter, shorter and everything. And I think skiing, if you are in good shape, you know, if you're physically in good shape, you can learn how to ski in two weeks if mm -hmm. you get an instructor. I think mm -hmm. skiing is easy to learn, like trying to learn how to play golf or tennis is much more difficult. I'm going to add that to my, my lifetime bucket to. list. And, and so as a young chef, you moved from Austria to France. Uh -huh. And um, looking at the restaurants that you worked in, I was interested, especially that you were at the three Michelin star Lusteau de Bermignere uh -huh. in Provence, because Heston Blumenthal, was a guest on the podcast and he credits that restaurant as the reason that yeah. he became a chef because it was so inspiring to yeah. him. So what is it about this place? It was obviously so special. It's a, it's a magical place, but the place without the person wouldn't be as great either. Even it's a beautiful uh, place, you know. Uh, I think Raymond Tullier really changed my life. When I went there and... Uh, I saw the way he cooked, the passion he had for it was amazing. And it helped also, I remember he brought Elizabeth Taylor in the kitchen, he mm. brought uh, Marcello Mastroianni and Catherine Deneuve in the kitchen. Uh, Even how exciting. Picasso came and... Uh, uh, Picasso? Yeah, and I remember uh, the Queen of England came. I mean, so it's really... When you were cooking there? No, no uh, Queen of England came just before I went there. Wow. Yeah. And uh, uh, so I think it's really a great place, a three-star restaurant. But to me, Raymond Tullier really changed my life. He became my mentor. And he was the first one who saw something in me and said, you know, I think this boy has talent. And whenever he went on a vacation or took some time off, he said, Wolfgang has to make the sauces. Because the sauce station was like the number one station in the mm -hmm. French cooking. So I think uh, he... He believed in... That's a real sign of belief in you. Yeah. To so trust he was, you with that. He was the first one. And it's where I spent the most time. I spent two and a half years there. Mm -hmm. And 
it changed my life. Before that, I didn't know if I'm going to actually stay with cooking. I said, maybe I'm going to go back to Austria. I had a friend who was a truck driver, and he used to make really good money. Mm-hmm. And I made nothing, basically, you know, going from one good place to the other. So I said, maybe I'm going to do that. But when I spent the time at Beaumanier, I think it changed my life. I said, I want to be like him. So he became my mentor and my idol, really. So for Mm -hmm. years and years, I was always thinking, I am going to be, I want to be like him. And he had two restaurants there. He had vineyards there. He had olive trees. I mean, he was really a Renaissance man. He was a painter. He was the mayor of the village. So it's really, really a great man. I think very few who are that big in so many different ways, you know, and he had all these politicians come. I remember Pompidou came and so forth. So he was always into politics, listening on the radio when they had elections in the kitchen. And in the fall, we didn't have a lot of customers, so we went to pick olives, made olive oil. And uh, it was really, to me, a great place. And I'm very excited because this summer, I'm going to spend five days there. So I'm going to go back. I didn't go in 10 years. So I'm going to go there and hang out a little bit with Jean-Ré, who is the owner, and uh, see what's going on there. If I would be young, I would tell Jean-Ré, you know, maybe we should buy it. And uh, But, you know, now I don't know if it's the right time. Oh, that sounds like a restaurant that everyone should try and visit once in a lifetime. You know, it is so beautiful there, the whole thing. If you spend a week there, visit the surroundings. And now in Arles, which is close to it, they have the new Giri built museum there, mm-hmm. which Maya, Maya Hoffman paid for it. But they have other restaurants. You can go to Avignon. You can go to Marseille. Uh, they have a restaurant outside of Marseille called the Petinis, also a three-star restaurant. And... Uh, they have one in the Camargue called La Chassagnette, which is really a great place too. Uh, everything from the farm, they grow everything there. Mm. So to me, it's a special place, really. And uh, I love the countryside there. I love the little towns like Saint-Rémy or lille sur sorgue and so forth, or Sa- Salon, Aix-en-Provence. So, oh, I love Aix. Yeah. yeah. Provencal ho- foodie holiday. That sounds like the perfect itinerary. Well, chapter three is the place where you learned the most about yourself. Wow, you know, I think it was an interesting experience. I mean, there are many of them. Of course, But as a young kid, my stepfather was really terrible. So he was very abusive to my sister physically, emotionally, and so forth. He always told me I was good for nothing. How awful. I'm so sorry to hear that. So when I moved, when I went to my apprenticeship, he told me, I'm good for nothing, and you're going to be back in, uh, in a month and ask for money, and, you know, uh, and then I go to the apprenticeship, and the chef at this hotel was as crazy as my stepfather. Uh. And screaming, throwing things, hitting people and everything. And then, like, three weeks into my apprenticeship, I mean, I was, like, five foot tall, you know, and... I was peeling the potatoes and boiling the potatoes and making mashed potatoes. So that was basically my job. And one Sunday, we ran out of potatoes and out of mashed potatoes Sunday lunch. And then at the end, he screamed like crazy. And he called me over to his little office he had in the kitchen and says, you are fired. You have to go home and uh, go home back to your mother. And I told myself, I am not going back and 
see my stepfather, you know, talking uh, the way he said or proving him right. So that day I said, I don't know what I'm going to do. So that night I stood on the bridge over the river and I said, I'm going to jump into the river. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to kill myself. So I was done, basically. I said, I'm not going back. That's no option for that. And then I stood for an hour on the river thinking what will happen when I die, you know, if I'm going to be in heaven or in hell or whatever. Mm. And then all of a sudden, like a light went up, and I said, okay, I'm not jumping. I'm going to go back tomorrow. So mm-hmm. I couldn't sleep all night. The next, uh, the next day I went at 7 in the morning before the chef came. I was already in the restaurant. The apprentice saw me, and he hid me in the cellar. And uh, I was peeling potatoes then and everything. And about a few weeks later, the chef comes down in the vegetable cellar and starts screaming at me, what are you doing here? And uh, you're fired. You go, should go home to your mother and so forth. And I yelled back. I was so angry and nervous and everything. I said, you know, I'm not going home. He grabbed me by my cooking jacket and tried to pull me away. I was holding on to the potato bags. I'm screaming, I'm not leaving, I'm not leaving. <sighs> and then he didn't know what to do, so he finally called the owner of the hotel and said, what should I do with this piece of shit here? You know, this kid is good for nothing and he should go back home and maybe come back the next year. And the owner had a little bit more empathy and sent me then to another hotel. They had another little hotel with a the restaurant there. They had a woman who was the chef and she was kind of had more empathy and she told me basically uh, do your job and don't make any noises and everything will be fine. So to me, when I look back, this moment really where I said don't give up, perseverance yep. and don't take no for an answer. I mm-hmm. think it's really stayed with me for the rest of my life. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers? 
just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Yeah, and I imagine also, because from what you say, it was because, you know, a day a day's worth of potatoes. I mean, when we look at it yeah. on balance, it, it's, yeah. you know. So as a... Um, a head chef you hear stories all the time of you know head chefs being a bit crazy and smashing things and hitting things and stuff has it did that really influence how you chose to manage your teams you know there was a time when i used to yell too because that's what all i thought that's the way it is even at Mm -hmm. bomania atelier used to yell yell at everybody and everything Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. it was so intense uh so i thought this is the way to go and uh, for years I was like that. I remember when I worked in at Maxime's in Paris and I started to yell at one of the chefs in the kitchen too and the executive chef, the main chef, came over and says, you don't yell here. If I yell, I can yell, but nobody else. And mm. you don't hear me yelling. You talk to people. And I said, okay. And if not, he said, here's the exit. You can leave. And before that, I thought it was okay. Like when I was at Beaumanier, Julie was yelling. I remember then I was the chef in a restaurant there called La Cavodor, which was his second restaurant, like a one-star uh-huh. in the Guide Michelin restaurant. And the chef left. And then Julie sent me there and said, okay, you're going to have to be the chef there. And I was barely 20 years old, I think. So. Amazing. And, but then I acted like him. I yelled. He had part of his family was managing that hotel and restaurant, and they couldn't come in the kitchen. I yelled at them and said, no, I don't want to talk to you. If you want something, you have to write me a note. <laughs> it was crazy. So I said, you know, if they would do that to me, a young kid today, I would say, okay, here's the exit. Leave. Uh, you can leave now. <laughs> so I thought at one point that that was it. But I also learned that you don't going to be successful by acting like that. Even at that time already, where it was more common. Now, obviously, it's times are so different, you know. So I think now I really learned from it. And I said, you know, instead of telling somebody, this is wrong, this is not right, and yelling at them, I said, no, look, this is the way I want it done. This is the way we do it here. So go and tell them in a positive way. Mm. And I think then you get a much easier response and they also feel much better about themselves because yeah. I think nobody want to, wants to be yelled at or whatever, uh, saying you do this wrong, you're an idiot or you're this or you're that. If you show them what to do right, it's much easier for me and better for them. Their self-esteem yeah. is much m- more boosted as a result. Totally, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's really interesting. And then... You moved from France to the U.S. Uh-huh. And as you mentioned, you set up, you know, these incredibly successful restaurants in, in California first yeah. in particular. And that really attracted the attention of the Hollywood uh-huh. elite. Um, and was it that buzz then of the hype that you were getting around your restaurants that landed you this incredible gig that you've had for so long of doing the, the food for the Oscars after yeah. party? 
Well, when I was at Ma Maison, before I opened my own restaurant, you know, that was in the late 70s, already there I met Orson Welles, I met Billy Wilder, and I met uh, uh, Dinah Shore, I remember, and John Collins. So mm. they all used to come to this restaurant mainly for lunch. And I remember I used to make a special for Orson Welles. He came like four times a week for lunch, so I cooked for him. Always what did he like to special. order? Huh? Did he have anything in particular? Or whatever, he, he said, just whatever. I cooked for him. I thought he's like my guinea pig. Like when I cooked the fish medium rare. At that time, nobody cooked fish medium rare or whatever. Or I made sausages. I made like a, a sausage, a warm truffle sausage, and I served oh, it yes. like a duck sausage with pistachio in it and truffles in it and everything. And I gave it to him, and he said, wow, that's good. It, all we need is a glass of champagne. So I <laughs> told the waiter, open a bottle of champagne for Mr. Wells and so forth. So I think, but I started to know some people. And then in 82, when I opened Spago, it was the first restaurant, at least in the United States and maybe in Europe too, which had a total open kitchen. The kitchen was basically in the middle of the dining room. Mm -hmm. So the chefs were at center stage. It was like theater. So I could see that when the people walked in, say hello oh, to them. So you and could everything. have that more personal connection with your customers. Totally. So yeah. all How that was the first time the chefs were the center yeah. of the restaurant, not the owner or the manager or the maitre deal. The, the way it was always before you know mm. nobody knew who the chefs were in restaurants you know there was always only the front men who Makes talked so to much the customers yeah. yeah so that was the difference and then it was a different restaurant because i wanted it to be fun i said i don't want to be one of these restaurants where everybody is quiet and they look at the food i said we're gonna buy the best ingredients i used to go to a farm to pick up the vegetables the strawberries and uh, melons and tomatoes and things like that mm. and cook them and keep them simple you know i didn't make it very complicated we put a wood burning grill we had a wood burning pizza oven and we made uh Roasted fish in there, roasted uh, Sonoma lamb, and also our pizzas. And then we made the pizzas different, like a duck sausage pizza, or the smoked salmon pizza, mm -hmm. and so forth. So that became a whole thing, and everybody loved the restaurant because it had such a great ambiance. It, the tables were close together, and uh, everybody showed up. And then in '85, I think Swifty Lazar, who was a famous agent, he did his Oscar party there. Mm -hmm. And there, everybody came from the old oh, wow. actors like Jimmy Stewart, Cary Grant, Paul Newman, Elizabeth Taylor. And then you had the young ones like Madonna and Michael Jackson. And, uh, quite All in a, one room? Yeah. So it was God, the old and the new. How surreal. Was that just like super, super surreal for you? Yeah. No, it was, it was very exciting with Thrifty putting the name tags on everywhere and say, oh, my God, uh, Jack Nicholson is coming. One mm. baby is coming. So-and-so yeah. uh, is coming. And so we became like this Hollywood restaurant. Amazing. And so on these nights now, the Oscar after parties, how, like tell me about, it's, is it 1,600 guests or so that you're cooking for in like a really short period Okay, of time? so we did the, the Oscar party at Spago until uh, the mid-90s. Yeah. Then when Swifty passed away, I couldn't do the Oscar party because... Uh, I have so many customers at the restaurant who I knew who were not in the film business. Yeah, yeah. But they all wanted to get invited. So I said, you know, we only have 160 seats. I cannot invite 500 people. Yeah. And they sent me nasty. We did it once. They sent me nasty letters. I'm never coming back and oh, I'm God. never doing that. And meanwhile, during that time, they always, the board of governors of the academy, 
they wanted to, me to cater their pick party. They had a party for yeah. 1,600 people. Yeah. But all the A-list celebrities used to come to Spago. So they wanted to get that too. They wanted the celebs. Yeah, they wanted the celebs at their party. And so we started that, I think, in uh, 95 or 96. And I remember Mike Ovitz, who was then the head of CAA, he says, oh, if you're catering, I bring all my clients there. And he was the biggest talent agent. You know, his agency was number one by far. And yeah. all the uh, famous actors from Paul Newman to Barbara Streisand, you name it. And so for sure, he all they all came when we did this party. So this became really a big party, and we are still doing it today. And do you love it? You know, it's exciting for all the young people that come. Like I have, for example, this year our chef from Budapest came. Nice. And then we made some small buffets in a dining room too, so people could get something fast to eat if they want to. And we pass things around. We make 30 different dishes all on small plates. Mm. So we have, you know, 300 chefs and 600 waiters working <laughs> on the party. It's a lot of people, a lot of organization. And uh, I think for me, like the chef from Hungary who came, he went back to Budapest and showed uh, pictures with some of the Oscar winners and everything. And he is a big star in Budapest in Hungary now because he cooked at the Oscars and I told him, make something Hungarian. And he did. Oh, that's so so nice. Yeah. You mentioned Barbara Streisand. Am I right in thinking that she is a big fan of yours and has her favorite dishes? I know Papa Streisand for so many years. I yeah. mean, we cooked at her house and everything. And uh, she comes to the Bel Air Hotel and has lunch there or dinner there. Or if I do a special party, I always invite her. And I remember years ago, at the, one of the first ones, maybe, I made chicken pot pie with black truffles. Ooh, and one of yum. the great things is that if you serve it in, you know, in these crocks, but it stays very hot, but it, it's basically sealed with the puff pastry. And so when she got it at the Oscars, and then uh, uh, from then on, each time when I see her, she said, Wolfgang, did you make the chicken pot pie? I want to have this chicken pot <laughs> pie again. So I think what is really nice to hear that if you do a party for 1600 people still come to the restaurant and they want the same thing. And I think yeah. I remember the same thing happened with Michael and Shakira Kane one time. He, they went to the Oscar, but his family did not go, I think. And then they came to our restaurant the, the, on Monday or on Tuesday, a few days after, and said, Wolfgang, can you make us the same thing you made at the Oscars? So oh, I said, oh, wow. for sure, for yeah. you we make it. <laughs> so for me, I was very proud because I said, if our food for 1600 tastes so good that yes. people want to taste it again, exactly. then we did the job right. Totally, because you think about food en masse, like you yeah. kind of think it couldn't, you know, it's not the same as in a small restaurant in terms of necessarily the quality control. It must have to be so, like, totally. tri- tricky, isn't it? But that's why we have so many different chefs. Yeah. And I divide the kitchen in a small kitchen, actually, you know, where each one serves like 300 dishes, you know, small ones. And, you know, it goes very fast because when the Oscars, when the ceremony is over, like by 9 o'clock LA time or so, 9.30, everybody is hungry. You know, you mm-hmm. have to be at the theater at four in the afternoon. A lot of uh, it's a long day, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, a lot of uh, 
especially women, you know, they have to go get makeup, get their hair done and everything. So they are basically not having any big food uh, until 9 or 10 o'clock at night. They're probably night. wearing a dress that's like three sizes, like too small so type thing. Then they can eat and they let out let a little go. bit. Yeah. <laughs> undo the zips, undo the pins. Yeah. Was it different this year? Like, obviously, it kind of hit the headlines and it was quite a strange one to watch. I remember watching it live. Yeah. Was the atmosphere different at the party this year? You know, it was strange because I thought it going to be different. But it wasn't really because it was the first time again. You know, last year we didn't have it. And it yeah. was a terrible one the way they did it. I didn't go last year. We, we made the food, but we didn't make any noise about it, no nothing. So there was mm. no real red carpet. And I think uh, Steve Soderbergh, who directed it, I thought he did a terrible job doing it. And they did it at the train station. Why they choose that, I have no idea. Mm. I mean, the Oscars and the train station no. does not sound yeah. the, the right combination. And But this year, everybody showed up. Everybody was celebrating. And, uh, They're just they happy were, to be out again. Yeah, they were happy to be out. And actually, it lasted longer than usual. Really? Yeah. Oh, I'm pleased to hear that in yeah. a way, that it wasn't kind of overshadowed. No, I don't think so. I think it was good. Wonderful. Well, let's pause there then and move on to chapter four. And that is, tricky one, your all-time favorite destination. You know, probably I must say, my all-time uh, favorite destination is probably uh, Sardinia. Oh, I've never been Sardinia. Please, like, bring it to life for okay. me. I'm desperate to if go If you go, I will show you some pictures after. I think, to me, it's the most magical place. There's a hotel called Cala di Volpe. Mm -hmm. I've heard of that. Yeah. And it's really, the hotel, the way it's designed, is amazing. You know, it's almost made by an artist, not one of these cookie-cutter box that look like hotels, you yeah. know. It's made by an artist where nothing is really perfect. The windows are rounded, the doors, the inside. So it's really, you feel like you're somewhere else. So the whole place is really charming. And then the beach is the best beach. Is this, uh, because they call it Costa Smeralda. So it's this yeah. emerald green, bluish water. Mm. Clear. You can see down. I remember sometimes I dived down. I said, I have to get to the bottom with no, with no gear or anything. And I swim, I swim, I swim. I said, no, I cannot touch the bottom because yeah, I won't be able to get up again. Still. Yeah, it's so clear and so clean. Gorgeous. It is really beautiful. And uh, I remember seeing the kids being on the boat, seeing them water skiing and everything. And then, because I love food too, the lunch there is really terrific too. You go in and see the chef. I know the chef after all these years. You know, mm -hmm. I always tell him what you have or order me the special Lou de Mer, like I'm at the Pranzino, get me a big wild Pranzino and we have mm -hmm. it roasted in the oven with tomatoes and fennels and potatoes and a little white wine and saffron and olive oil, salt and pepper. So it's really simple, but he bakes it for us. Ugh. And then they bring out the big fish and everybody just looks at it mm -hmm. and I said, wow, and I'm you sure are special. Fresh. It's so yeah, fresh, yeah. I imagine. Yeah, totally yeah. fresh, yeah. So it's really great. And you get the appetizers there. My wife loves, my wife Galila loves the desserts there. They have like dessert she... Uh, reminded her of her youth because she's from Ethiopia and, you know, a lot of Italians went to Ethiopia yes. and they opened caf uh, cafes there, they opened pastry shops there and everything. So I think for me it's always special and uh, I think this year is the first time that we are not going back 
because uh, of the time of our son, he has to finish school. So mm-hmm. we cut it short and uh, our vacation a little shorter. So we are going to Turkey because our friends have a boat there. And then we're going to go to Bomanier for a few days and then to Antiparos for somebody's birthday. Ooh. Lovely. So it's still going to be still a, a great European yeah, trip. Yeah, it's still going to be a nice summer. Yeah. Oh, well, you've you've sold me on Sardinia. When you go there, aside from spending time in that beautiful location yeah. on the beach, are there other things that you always like, like to do? Do you like to go out? You like to go out on the water? Like what? What it, do you? It, how it do you pass is, time there? It is so magical. You can take rent a day boat. And you go to the Magdalena Island, and they have a great place for lunch there. So it's a a little island. A little island, island. yeah, not too far out. But the most magical uh, trip is, if the waters are calm, you can go to Corsica, to Bonifacio. And going into the harbor in Bonifacio, it's really amazing because it's this huge, huge rocks, you know, yeah. you go in between. You cannot see the town really when you're on the water. It's, because it's all up on the cliffs, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's way high yeah. up. And yeah. it's a fort what Napoleon built up there and everything yeah. because he was from uh, Corsica too. So, and going there, having lunch coming back, do a little fishing, go stop at one of the little islands, go swimming. I think Mm. it's really a great day trip. Every year when we are there, we take the boat over and have a a lunch at the restaurant there. Oh, that sounds glorious. How about then a favorite hotel? I mean, aside from obviously the Dorchester collection that you work with, is there one that you go back to again and again? You know, I find new hotels like uh, Cala de Volpe is an amazing hotel, you yeah. know. But I just found one in Cabo. In Cabo? Oh, in nice. Ca- yeah. Cabo is two hours by plane yeah. from LA. And there's a Montage Hotel. And because labor in Mexico is very inexpensive, so the hotel has 140 rooms, but they have 650 employees. God. So the service and everything, it's amazing. I can imagine, yeah. Yeah. So I thought, you know, it's great. It's close to LA. Hawaii is already five and a half hours. So it's yeah, a, a it's, trip. You yeah, know? it's you, quite a long flight, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Really? You don't going to go for the weekend. You know, you have to go for a week. But uh, going to Kabul, you leave on Friday, come back Monday, is perfectly fine. And the Montage Hotel there is really amazing. I think the service there is great. They have three restaurants, very good Mexican food and everything. Mm. So you really feel like you're away. Now, I must say the the building is not really traditional looking. It's like a modern hotel. Mm -hmm. But you can go to the beach. It's in a little cove. So you go to the beach, go swimming in the water. The water is warm. So it's nice. nice. Lovely. That is, you're so lucky in California to have that, have Mexico so so yeah. near. I envy that. Yeah. I guess being here, we're lucky that we, I guess, can get to the, you know, Well, in two hours, you are and... anywhere too, you know. <laughs> yeah. So it's really, uh, LA is a little far away from everything. Though I must say, I was in a beautiful hotel uh, for Mother's Day in Santa Barbara, which is an hour and a half drive from LA. That's where I got married. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, fantastic. So in Montecito, they have a hotel called the Miramar. It's a Rosewood Hotel. That's where I got married. Oh, yeah? Yeah, <laughs> at the Miramar. Yeah? At the Rosewood, yeah. Yeah. 
Isn't it gorgeous? Yeah, it's yeah. beautiful. We spent the weekend there, and uh, I went swimming in the water. It was a little cold, but it was nice, too. And uh, the hotel oh, is nice, and yeah. we had dinner down at Caruso's restaurant. And uh, so it was nice for a few days to get away. Oh, Santa Barbara is amazing. In fact, I'd love to move there. I mean, yeah. it's just got such a lovely vibe. Did you, if I remember rightly, also have a gorgeous uh, destination wedding? Yeah, we had an amazing wedding in Capri. Mm, it's one of my favorite places. Yeah. I think it was beautiful. And, uh, you know, we, I said, I'm going to go to Capri so that way we don't have to have so many people because <laughs> nobody's going to come. And then it's a long we, way to get to it. I know. It's a long way to go from Los Angeles. And then we still ended up with 160 people. Oh, my goodness. But, uh, what we, made you choose Capri? Because I have never been. My wife has never been. So mm -hmm. I said, okay, let's do it in a place which is new for both of us. Yeah. It made it a little complicated because to get, you know, you have to get to Naples, then you have to take the ferry over to the island, go up to the top of the mountain there yeah. and, and do everything. And so did you do it up on what, in like Anacapri on the high? No, we, high, we did it. Bit. We got, had the wedding at the Augustus Garden. When you go down there, it's yeah. like on a cliff like that. Yeah. And I'm height sick. I could not look down, I remember. <laughs> you were just looking at your wife though, thankfully. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And then what was great is... Um, we had the party afterwards at the Crazy Sana Hotel. And uh, I'm good friends with David Foster. He's one of the famous musicians. You know, he yeah. composed all so many things, so many songs and everything. And uh, for Whitney Houston and all the things. And uh, so he was playing. Uh, and uh, Vittorio Grigolo, who is a famous opera singer, he was singing. So oh it was really, goodness. really beautiful. Yeah. Oh, what a dream. You yeah. must have some amazing photos. It was a, a three-day wedding. So the first day, we had uh, a party, which was a lot of fun, at Da Paolino, which is this restaurant, which is covered with lemon trees. You have all mm -hmm. these lemons. And my wife said, ah, the lightning is not right here. Okay, we have to change the lightning. So she, a few days before, she said, you have to uplight it, not from up down. You have to light it up so you can see the lemons and everything. And then... All of a sudden, they want to say, yeah, this is a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably still uplit now. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, we had the wedding, uh, and then uh, the next day was my birthday. <sighs> so we took two big boats and took like maybe 80 people or 100 people to Nerano, which is right across, you know, on the Amalfi Coast, and had uh, lunch at uh, Quattro Passi. Oh, wow. And Tonino, the chef and owner, is a good friend of mine, so we hung out there, so it was nice. Oh, that sounds absolutely magical. What yeah. a wonderful memory. Yeah. No, it was a great, great time. You know, when you have a destination wedding, uh, people come early and stay together, so you see the people for three days. It's not like sometimes in L.A. we have a wedding at the restaurant, you know, they have the ceremony, and then three hours later they go home. Yeah. I mean, that's the case here in England as well. Yeah. yeah. So that's lovely that it was a, a real bonding time. Yeah, yeah. No, it was really nice, yeah. So chapter five, then, is your hidden gem. Now, this is a place that you love that maybe my listeners wouldn't know about uh, it could be you know as big as a city or like a little cafe that you absolutely love you know a little gem i just found out is is budapest mm. you know i haven't been and interestingly enough sometimes i'm right sometimes wrong but i said i like to open restaurants in places i don't know yep so that's so interesting yeah so a bit of a risk yeah, it's a risk, but also, so when I went to Budapest, and I said, wow, this is more beautiful than Vienna. 
you know, the, the, the way the Danube goes through, you have Buddha and Pest. Buddha is up on the hillside with the, with the castle and all that thing. So it's really a very beautiful place, you know, to go for a few days is perfect. And I think they have good food, good restaurants now there. And the hotel, the, the Mathilde Palace Hotel, where we are, it's a beautiful hotel. They restored it amazingly. Mm. And I think it's really, really a great place to go. For me, that really changed my uh, impression about Hungary. You know, Hungary, yeah. I remember when I was in Austria, I just finished the communist rule and everything. And then uh, uh, now it's really up and coming. I'm actually going back. Uh, end of July for the Formula One race there, so nice. it's it's really nice, and I love our restaurant there. When I was there months ago, I went outside like an hour outside of Budapest, and you have vineyards. And uh, I went to this farmer who was making hams like in Italy, prosciutto and culatello and everything, and really delicious one too. So I said, okay, good now, produce then. Now we have them at the restaurant. Yeah, <laughs> Fantastic. So the penultimate chapter, Wolfgang, is chapter six, and that is the place that you'd never go back to. Wow, that's a good question. Now I have to think where I never want to get back to. You know, I don't... I don't really have a place I could say I will never go back there where I had really a bad experience because it's all about the people. And I'm a fairly optimistic person. And I must tell you, unfortunately, I had a very bad childhood. So going home for me, going back where I grew up is the most difficult thing for me because it still is inside of me. So, and whenever I go, I said, you know, after all these years, I should be over it already, you know, over my stepfather, over my upbringing and everything. But still, when I go back there, I have to leave. I don't want to be there, really. So, I never spend my vacation there. And as a matter of fact, like, in 2019, I went near where I grew up, or actually where my mother was the chef and where I worked, they have a... Uh, detox clinic like called Viva Maya. Oh, yeah. That's brutal. Yeah. Oh, it's not so bad. No? But what Don't was, you have to just not eat anything? Yeah. What was bad for me <laughs> is the vibe there. Is the... The vibe. The, the vibe. vibe. Because of my youth, so it was difficult to be there. Mm. And I went last September, I went to the one in Salzburg, and it made me feel so good. Oh, because I wasn't there where my youth home. was, you know. So it was so different. I felt so much better. I walked around and everything. I didn't know it before, and I felt really good. So now I won't go back to the one where I grew up. I will go to Viva Maya mm -hmm. in Salzburg in Altausee, which is really a great place. And if anybody wants to recuperate, like I eat and drink a lot, you know, yeah. but I think to get away from it, eat very little. They eat soup. They have their own gardens and everything. So it's simple. But funny enough, you're never hungry. Really? Yeah. It's somewhere like I would aspire to do something like that. You know, I, I, I get it. The kind of system reset, the yeah. detox. And how did you feel? Uh, how do you feel after? I felt very well. Spiritually, I felt better. I think I felt connected to the nature. And my body felt better, you know, because yeah. I think... With all the abuse it takes from me all year long, with drinking tequila and wine and champagne and eating everything uh, 
way too much maybe. So I think it was really, the first few days was a little hard. You know, no coffee in the morning for me. I drink two double espressos or three double espressos every morning. Do you morning. get withdrawal then? Do you get a yeah, headache? Yeah, I got a headache, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. after three days, then I felt good. Yeah. So it was really, really a good place. A good place. that I love that place, but I did not like uh, the one uh, uh, where I grew up. Yeah. Oh, that I understand that, but I'm glad that you were able to have a positive experience. Yeah. So, and also somewhere else in Austria. So it doesn't yeah. t- taint all of Austria. Exactly. For you. Yeah. So I think yeah. the, the place where I grew up is always difficult. Yeah. But I think the, the, it's really there, the feeling. And it's interesting, the energy I get when I'm there is so different than when I was in Salzburg or Vienna. Yeah. yeah. Do you pick up on energies at different yeah. places? What 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 other s- cities give you, a, energize you, make you excited? Well, for example, when I go to Tokyo, I get very excited because oh, the food world there is so interesting. The fish market there, I didn't go now in a few years, but now they have a new fish market. But in Skiji, was amazing. I love the seaside in Hayama and Yokohama and everything. I think Japan is a beautiful country, or Kyoto, and visit the temples and, you know, eat in the small, really upscale restaurants. And I think uh, Japan is really, really, for me, a special place. Mm. Well, you've taken us all around the world, Wolfgang. What an amazing conversation. We are on to the final chapter of your travel diaries chapter seven and that is the destination at the top of your travel bucket list that you've not made it to yet you know i was just talking with a friend of mine he's egyptian and Mm -hmm. he told me about the uh cruise on the niles and to see all the pyramids the sphinxes and all the things from the old egyptians i thought that would be really a thing and i really tried to go hopefully next year you know, mm-hmm. now it's uh, too hot already. Yeah. But I want to go next spring and then uh, hopefully go for three, four days on the right boat. He, he told there me. There are some nice boats. Yeah, you there? have yeah. to go on a nice boat. That will be it. But I also want to go on a safari. I never went on a safari. My son, Alexander, who is the youngest, is 15. He just got back yesterday from Uganda. Mm-hmm. And he said they went on a safari for two days, and he said I saw the uh, lions like ten feet away, the giraffes, the leopards, and crocodiles, and all that things. And he sent pictures. It really looks truly amazing. And every year the same. I say, okay, I'm gonna go, and then I don't go. But this too, going down the Nile and going uh, on a safari, I think is two of the things I wanna do. Wonderful. I hope that you make it there next year. I will make it, yeah. Yeah. I'm still young, so I think I'm not worried. Well, thank you so much for your time, Wolfgang Puck. Those were your travel diaries. It has been an absolute joy to speak to you. Thank you so much. I think traveling is important because we always learn. And I always tell people, curiosity is the most important thing. If you lose your curiosity, if you lose learning about different cultures, different countries, different people, different foods and everything, then why live? I think to me, that's really the most important part, Mm, curiosity. Wise words, words to live by. Thank you so much, Wolfgang. Thank you. What a touching way to end the episode. Really thought-provoking, lovely words there from Wolfgang Puck. 
If you'd like to experience Wolfgang's incomparable cuisine, then you should check out the new outdoor dining terrace of Cut at 45 Park Lane Hotel, which is part of the Dorchester Collection in London, which is open for lunch and dinner. Thanks so much for listening today. If you'd like to hear more from the podcast, don't forget to hit subscribe or if you use Apple Podcasts to hit follow so that a new episode lands in your podcast app each week. And if you're really enjoying it, I'd be so grateful if you fancied leaving a quick rating or review. If you want to be the first to find out who's joining me on next week's episode, come and follow me on Instagram. I'm at Holly Rubenstein. I'd love to hear from you. And if you can't wait till then, remember there's the first seven seasons to catch up on. That's over 85 episodes to keep you busy there. Don't forget that all the destinations mentioned by my guests are always included in the episode show notes here on your podcast app. And they're also always on my website, thetraveldiariespodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening and I'll be back next week. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.